Now is the time for the leader to qualify. Hi, my name is Aaron. I am a compulsive overeater and 100 pounder. I brought, uh, I brought pictures, which I will pass around. And I will, uh, I brought my pants. These are exactly one of the real pairs of pants that I was wearing when I first uh, came into program. And they were tight on me. And I was refusing to believe that I needed to go up another size. So my favorite part, the wearing, tearing between the legs that happens to all of us. The nightmare of my pants existence before program. Um, what it was like. So I came into program in 2011. It was around October or November of that year. Uh, I came to a couple of meetings. Um, looking for an answer to my life. Um, I, I want to take one second. I apologize to everybody who's on the podcast. I spoke at Light a Candle last week, so it's just kind of the me show on the podcast for a while. Um, so I came into program, uh, what it was like. I hit a real bottom with my life. My entire life was out of control. I could not think of a single area in my life where I had had any kind of success when I came to the program. I didn't, I, I'd lost the last thing that I was able to hold on to um, across the board. And they say that's what it takes to, to get the gift of desperation, to get the willingness. The, the thing you are about to lose or the thing you have just lost uh, is more important to you than the food. Um, I am the guy who ran away with the circus. If you've heard any of the other shares I've given. Um, I got to 30 years of age without any meaningful career. I didn't have a meaningful relationship going on. I wasn't married, wasn't in a long-term relationship. Both of my parents passed away by the time I was 30. And I wasn't doing anything that I wanted to be doing. And the opportunity came up to run away with the circus. And I said to myself, well, if I can't run away with the circus, who can? So I did. And... um, I was overweight at the time, and I was convinced that the circus would fix me. And it's kind of the ultimate geographic cure. Some people change cities. I was going to go to a different city every week for the rest of my life. (laughs) I would never catch up with myself. Um, But I found out that I could eat at the circus just as much as anybody. In fact, I could eat a little bit more because I was working harder than I'd ever worked in my life. Um, While I was at the circus, I wound up uh, running into an ex-girlfriend and we hooked up and a few months later she called me to tell me that she was pregnant with my child and so this was my first wake-up call uh one of the things that i've noticed about my life is usually i i do start out doing something for others and then realize that i need to keep doing it for myself so i realized i needed to put my life together because i was going to be a dad i was going to be responsible for someone else and i couldn't keep messing around and i couldn't keep uh just saying, well, I'll get better tomorrow because I was going to have to help raise a small child and send her to college. That was my new point, my new outlook on life. So uh, I left the circus. I came back to Los Angeles where I can make a much better wage, um, got a much better job, moved the woman uh, in. We had the baby. I was raising the baby for nine months. There were fights. We weren't getting along because we weren't a couple. We were just two people trying to raise a kid together, which is a very difficult proposition. And um, she said she wanted to take the baby back and go, go home to her family. 
and me and my family wanted to keep the baby and raise her here. So we started getting paperwork in order. I got my declaration of paternity together. I got all the checks that I'd ever written for child support. And I went and took the baby for a DNA test so that I could walk into a court and say, this is my kid. And when the DNA test came back, she was not my kid. And it was at that moment that I realized my life was the very definition of out of control. I really had no idea how I had gotten where I had gotten. I had no idea how I would let somebody into my circle that I absolutely could not trust. Um, people would ask me later on, how come you didn't uh, you know, get the baby tested right away? And I said, I honestly didn't know there were people in the world who would lie about something like that. Um, I've gotten that education now. It was a bit more expensive than I wanted it to be. Um, but it was at that point that I realized I needed something. I was in therapy, and my therapist believes in the 12 steps, and she suggested that maybe I could find a meeting. And I went looking for pretty much any 12-step meeting. I didn't know anything about the 12 steps. I'd, I'd flipped through the big book a few years before because I'd had friends who were in AA. Um, but it never made sense to me. It never seemed like something I was going to be able to use. I was like, well, yeah, if you have a problem with alcohol, I guess this makes sense. But um, I found this website. I have no idea what it was called. I have no idea what I typed into Google to get it to come up. But it was a list of all the 12-step meetings that were in the West Side area um, that were 12-step related. It had Al-Anon. It had SLAA. It had SAA. It had OA. It had AA. It had them all there. And... Uh, it just so happened that the next 12-step meeting that I qualified for was an OA meeting that took place two blocks away from my house. And so uh, the next Sunday morning, I woke up and I walked up to it and I sat in the back. And they read the story about the guy who walked through a plate glass window and was like the worst patient this one nurse had ever seen. And, the reason, and he found that out because later on he was sitting in some cafe hearing the nurse describe how awful he was to a colleague. And... Um, I remember people were looking for the positive thing in the share. People were looking for the positive thing in the story that they could take away from it. And one guy said, wow, I'm blown away to get it at 19. That's such a gift. And I wanted to punch that guy because I was 32 trying to get it. And I was like, wait, what's wrong with getting it at 32? Is that such a bad thing to get? I don't know. Am I too late? Um, and that was it. I, came, I started going to meetings. Um, I went to that Sunday meeting regularly for a couple of weeks. And I remember hearing about the Thanksgiving in the park and not going because it was going to interfere with my Thanksgiving. And um, I remember finally I heard over and over again people saying, uh, my sponsor has directed me to share. My sponsor says I have to put my hand up. You have to share if it's going to work. You have to open your mouth. So finally, one Friday night, I went to a meeting at the cottages, and I raised my hand, and for the first time, I said, I'm Aaron, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I said, uh, I get the diet, and I even get this kind of group therapy support group thing we're doing. I don't understand why I'm supposed to do all this work and then give God all the credit. And for, nobody laughed. <laughs> And nobody came up and said, thank you for your share afterwards. <laughs> and I noticed. And I went home. And I sat on the couch in the dark. And I, have a, I live with, in, with a chair duplex with my family. My cousin came in and found me sitting in the dark, no TV or anything. She said, what are you doing? And I said, I said something stupid in a room full of people. And I'm sitting here being mad at myself until that feeling goes away. This is how adults deal with their problems. Um, <laughs> and I didn't go back to a meeting 
for six weeks. I went through another Thanksgiving. I went through another Christmas. I went through another New Year's, binging, having horrible fights. And, um, you know, that, that, I, I have to talk about that. That's my thing. It's not just when I'm in the food, you know, I feel okay, but I'm a terrible person because I'm looking for the fight. The fight is how I'm going to get to the food. So when I'm saying, I'm, when I'm in a binge, when I'm in my binge personality, I mean, any slightly not pleasant look I get from anybody becomes the, you know, bomb in the day that will send me off. And I'm not looking for solutions, and I'm not looking for how to enjoy what is going on around me right here and right now. So those six weeks that I was, I was binging were terrible, you know? I was just bitter and irritable and restless and discontent and not having a very good time. And the food wasn't really working, but I couldn't stop eating it. I couldn't stop finding my way to the fast food drive through at 2 o'clock in the morning um, just to get away. You know, I, and I was causing fights so that I had a reason to leave the house so that I could you know, justify being at that drive through at 2 a.m. Um, so I went through another couple rounds of fights, went through another couple of uh, binges, and finally wandered back in in the new year. My therapist said, why don't you try doing 30 and 30? So I did 30 and 30, 30 meetings in 30 days. Uh, I used to have a wonderful work schedule where I woke up at 3 a.m. Uh, to start work at home and was off work by noon. So I would take, uh, I'd go to the Hill Street 7.30 a.m. meetings as my lunch break. It was actually a great way to start the day. Uh, those are still some of the best meetings in town if you've never been to them and you're on the west side. Um, I finally asked somebody to be a sponsor during that 30 and 30 and he asked me to start thinking about an abstinence. My first abstinence was three meals a day, nothing in between, no eating after dinner because that was my biggest problem was after dinner I had to keep eating. I had to eat everything there was in sight. I had to make sure the kitchen and the refrigerator were empty before I went to sleep. Otherwise, I couldn't justify going out and getting fast food breakfast when I woke up. If there was anything to eat in the house when I woke up, I didn't have an excuse to go out and get more. So I had this habit and this pattern of constantly eating everything there was in sight. Um, so I knew that was going to be my abstinence, and I started working on it. And I was getting towards the end of January, getting towards the end of my 30 and 30, my sponsor, I would call him. I love my sponsor. He said, you know, read two pages of the big book every day, no more so that you really process it, really, you know, connect with it and go through it. And call me every once in a while to let, you know, let me know how you're doing. And I started calling him every single day at like 9 a.m. Uh, and God bless him, he picks up. Um, so I would call him up and he would say, so when do you think, you know, are, are you, gonna, you think today's going to be day one? Is, are you, you know, when are you going to start this abstinence that we've talked about? And I finally told him I'm going to start it on February 2nd. And it's the last week of January. He says, why February 2nd? And I said, because I keep hearing the phrase, it's one day at a time. I'm going to be like that Bill Murray movie, Groundhog's Day. It's just going to live that day over and over and over again. And he said, that's very clever writing. Why don't you just stop? <laughs> so it was February 1st. Uh, I'd had breakfast, I'd had lunch, and I'd had dinner. And I was planning my attack on the uh, loaf of sourdough bread that was in the kitchen. And I realized at about 8 o'clock at night that if I just went to sleep, I would have one day. And so I did. And it scared the hell out of me. I'll tell you, that one day is scary. Because once you have that one day, 
you're either going for two or you're going to go back. I hated that feeling. I didn't want to have one day because then I'd have to keep getting them. Um, so I did that a lot for the first week. I just went to sleep. I would go to bed at 8. I'd go to bed at 9. wasn't, you know, I was getting up at 3 a.m. for work, so it wasn't that unusual. It was, it was justified. Um, and before I knew it, I had 30 days, and I got to stand up in a meeting and take a chip. And I'd lost a little bit of weight. I could tell because my clothes were, were looser, but I wasn't weighing. And to this day, I only weigh once a month just to check in on things. I don't weigh compulsively. I don't weigh every single day when I get up. I don't do that thing where I get up and weigh myself, and then I go to the bathroom and then weigh myself again so I can get the extra points. Um, and I used to do that. I used to sit there and negotiate. Maybe maybe if I, I don't know, should I shave my head while I'm standing here? That's got to be, what, half a pound? I don't know. I, Convinced that I can, you know, the number on the scale, just mad, being being lower will magically fix me is not part of my world anymore. Um, and that's how I started. I, I got really excited about the chips. Took my 30-day, took my 60-day, took my 90-day, took my six-month, finally got to a candle, then tried to make some kind of emotional trauma out of how I don't get to take chips anymore, um, which nobody bought. And... Uh, that was February 1st of 2012. So this last February, I took my second candle. I'm two years old. Since I've been in program, I have lost a little bit over 100 pounds. My body is not perfect. Sometimes it's a little bit under 100 pounds. Sometimes it's a little bit over 100 pounds, depending on what month, you know, where I am when I check in. I have started running on the suggestion of a therapist who said, why don't you try and get out and do 30 minutes of exercise three times a week. So um, I went and I started going to the gym on my lunch breaks and I got on the, what I call the lazy elliptical. That's the one that does not make you move your arms. And uh, I get on it. I push the weight loss button. It makes you do stuff for 28 minutes. If I was sweating and breathing hard, I was doing enough. And after the thing went beep, I got off, took a shower, changed back in my clothes and left the gym. Started doing that regularly three times a week. And just had to keep telling myself over and over, I've done what I said I would do. I've done, I've committed. There were days I walked out feeling like I could have run that. I could have gone faster. I could have done more. I could go lift some weights. And I just had to stick with what I had been advised to do. And sure enough, before two, by the end of that year, I had, was building up to, and I completed, um, in January of 2013, I did a 5K. It was the New Year's race through downtown in the middle of the night. It's freezing cold. Um... After doing that, I worked myself up, and in the summer, I did a 10K. And I found out I could keep going. So I kept doing what I was advised to do. I, got, I, got, I read material. I got training programs. I did what I was told to do, and I built myself up to a half marathon, which I ran in November. And tomorrow morning, I will be taking a shuttle out to Dodger Stadium, and I am running the Los Angeles Marathon. <laughs> Throughout all of that, my food hasn't changed. Now, I would have told you years ago that in order to run a 5K, I would need 65,000 calories. <laughs> I would have to have a giant bowl of pasta the night before to carb up. Um, I couldn't imagine doing that, having this life, having this level of fitness, having this level of... Um, I'm just going to say it. I like that my pants have you know two-digit number with a three at the front. That's what I like. Uh, I couldn't imagine having all this without spreadsheets 
and calculations to back it all up. I didn't, that was my old habit, was I had to figure out exactly how I was going to do it, how I was going to do it. And what program gave me was, I don't do anything. I'm passing some pictures around the room. Everything before 2011, I call Aaron's Aaron. That's the best I could do. That's what I could manage on my own. And everything after 2011 is God's Aaron. Because all I did was, was took my hands off the wheel. Before I came here to do this lead, I had to sit down in a, in a restaurant and I took out a notebook and I did three pages of writing. And while I was doing those three pages of writing, I wrote, step one, I'm powerless over this lead. I'm powerless over this share. If I try to get in this room and I'm going to give the great share, I'm going to give the next you know, new pair of glasses, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to have to figure out what's going on inside each and every one of your heads. And, and while you're all sitting here just trying to hear, hear what you relate to and you're trying to meet me halfway, I'm trying to get past you, back to down, what you're really looking for, what do you really want, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to figure it out. And the worst part about that is even if I succeed, the best feeling I can walk out of this room with is, oh, that's as good as I can do. I could get half of you. I could get more than half of you to tell me I gave a great lead and how inspiring and clever and awesome I was. And what I'm going to walk out of here thinking is, what's wrong with that other half? What did I do wrong? I didn't get the other half of that room. And so I'm not going to feel any of the love that was offered. I'm going to shove all that away and say, no, no, I want the full package. I want it all. I want to get every single drop of it. And I'm not going to get, not going to be open to any experiences that happen. And because I'm so busy trying to make sure that I show up great, I'm going to start lying. I'm not going to talk about what really happened in my story. You know, part of my story, I didn't say it because I said it on the podcast last week, and, and, but you know, part of my story is I had a, an abusive household growing up. I don't like to talk about it. I find it embarrassing. The abuser in my household happened to be my mother instead of my father, which is a difficult thing for a man to, sit, to kind of get up and talk about being abused by a woman, um, both because it you know, doesn't feel like the way things are supposed to go, but also because um, I struggle with, I've heard a lot in my life, you know, women want a man who loves their mother, and it's like, have you seen all the mothers? Have you seen the total list of possibilities before you start setting that requirement? Um, but I have to share, I have to share that, because somewhere in this room there's people who've gone through the same thing. Um, but if I'm here trying to give the next great share, I'm not, you know, I'm going to skip it because I don't want people to think I look weak. I don't want people to think I've had, you know, that kind of problem. And I'm not going to be of any use. So I wrote down in the book, I'm powerless over this share. Step two, I believe there is somebody who has the power, and that's God, that can actually make this a decent share and make this useful for the other people in the room and myself. And what God's going to do is tell me to be honest, share myself authentically, tell my real story, and then just sit here and be available for anybody afterwards. Let people hear what they hear. Everybody in this room is hearing what they want to hear anyway. Um, you know, people, I'm sure everybody here who's ever given a lead has had somebody come up and thank them for saying something they have no memory of saying. Thank you for talking about this. I had no idea I was talking about that at all. Um, and then step three. God, I'm turning this morning over to you, this whole day over to you. Um, I happened to dress up. I dressed up this morning. This is actually not the outfit I thought I was going to wear when I, when I went to bed last night. Um, but somehow this morning, standing in, 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 in my uh, bedroom, I was like, oh, I'm going to put on this, the coat and tie. I'm going to do the whole deal. I don't know why. It could be vanity. 
It could be that I just think I'm, 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 I'm supposed to look really good today. It could be that this is my version of humility. I show up and, and people tend to hear what they see, so when I show up to deliver the message, I'm going to show up looking really nice because I want to show up well for OA. OA saved my life. OA, I have literally changed the life I was living. I honestly thought that I was just going to die a fat, lonely person, completely miserable, wondering why I couldn't get it together. And I'm not living that life today because of this program. Because I gave up the binges, I gave up the sugar, I gave up the fried foods, I gave up all the extra little snacks and meals, I gave up the sugar-free gummy bears. Called up my sponsor one day, I said, everybody's eating stuff and there's sugar-free gummy bears to those count. He says, if you can tell me whether that's your protein, your vegetable, or your fruit snack, you can go ahead and have it. And I almost, I almost chose, went for the fruit snack option. I finally had to just say no. Um... Because it's not worth it. I mean, every, uh, you know, everything I hold on to is something that I put between me and God. I heard that in the rooms. I like sharing that one because I heard that in the rooms from somebody that for weeks previous, I wish they would they had stopped sharing. I was tired of their share. They were whiny. I didn't like anything they said until they said that. And I realized, oh my God, I need this person in the rooms. I need this person in my life. Everything I, I hold on to is something I'm putting between me and God. So... Um, when I come here and I, and I get to speak with other people who struggle with what I struggle with, I get to say thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being part of this program. I can run for four hours, and the only thing I had to change about my food was, was I added one snack. I found that out because of OA. I could not have found that out if you guys weren't here. And the biggest gift of this program isn't the new skinny waistline, and it isn't all the weight loss numbers, and it isn't the new level of fitness or the pictures of me or part of the marathon. I love all of those things. But the biggest gift of this program is I have a hundred phone numbers in my phone, any one of which I can pick up and dial and I can call and say, I'm worried about binging. And the person will give me time. They'll talk to me. They'll tell me what's going on with their day. They'll share with me their struggles. And I'll realize everybody is struggling. Everybody you meet today has felt love at some point in their life. And I would bet you anything, all they're looking for is a little bit more of it. And we can give that to each other. We can give each other time and space and a sympathetic ear. It doesn't cost us anything. And it makes my problem seem a little bit less when somebody calls me up and says, here's what's going to make me go out. Here's what I think is worth throwing away all of the absence I've accumulated because this person didn't call me back. This person broke up with me. This person's not available for this Friday night, which I actually put a lot of effort into planning. This other guy got the promotion. We'll throw it all away because of that. Because there's this little tiny demon inside of us that just keeps pushing the throw it away button. I like to picture him like the guy at the elevator. Come on, come on, go faster, go faster, go faster. Just going to keep pushing that button. And the only thing that helps me get through it is turning it over to God and saying, God, show me. I'm really uncomfortable. My little guy's pushing the button really hard over and over again. All I've got is you. Show me, show me why I'm ignoring that. Help me understand. Help me set aside everything that I think I know so that I can have a new experience. So, um, that's it. Thank you for your time. All right, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. All right. Good question. David. Aaron, thank you so much. Um, 
being somewhat young so, previously. So the question is, um, being young and in program, how do I handle, you know, being young, having relationships and fun uh, with my new shiny OA life? Uh, um, kind of the core of my program is letting the fun in. Um, when I did my 5K, I ran it in 34 minutes, and I said I would like to run it in under 30 minutes. And I, you know, paid a lovely therapist for an hour of her time to sit there and tell me, no, you ran a 5K. That was a big enough accomplishment. And if you don't, and, and asked me how I felt about it. And I said, it felt great. And I was, I've seen the pictures. I'm smiling like a fool in all of them. And she says, that's it. That's what, that's what life's about. Getting those, you know, you work hard, you do the work, and then you get that moment. And then you have to let that moment in. You have to be present with it and accept it. Because if you just throw it away, say, no, nah, it could be better you know, you'll quickly get down the road where you don't have any of those wonderful experiences to rely upon. Um, and I was just sitting here thinking about this. So since you asked about relationships, as my story might indicate, I qualify for another program and I go to that program to deal with my relationship issues. Um, I found that a, a part of, a large part of being fat was it affected my sex life. It affected uh, where I went for sex, the kind of people that I wound up with. And it's been a big part of my program, cleaning that up, you know. I'm worth uh, good, healthy, nutritious food. I'm worth giving myself physical exercise. And I'm worth finding, you know, good, loving people to be around that, that have the ability to give and receive love. And I'm worth, you know, working on that ability in myself. So I hope that answers the question. What are some of the tools you used, like, in the beginning when you were first... Um, what are the tools I used in the beginning when I was starting out and I first started getting urges to binge? Uh, sleep was one of them. Uh, um, I worked a lot. I threw myself into work. Um, and I made a lot of calls and I went to a lot of meetings. I, I was very, I was lucky that I got into that place where, um, if I didn't have anything else to do, I went to a meeting. The other thing is, I, my life didn't turn around magically in one night. I didn't kind of wake up one day and have, you know, wonderful OA recovery fresh out of the box. I had a lot of other behaviors and other habits, and I had to accept that I was working on the food, you know. People in AA get to keep eating chocolate. They get to keep smoking cigarettes. They get to keep having wildly irresponsible relationships. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, for them, it's the, the life or death issue is whether or not they take a drink. You know, if you're going to give up... I've been coping with food since I was about five years old. I remember getting fat when I was about eight or nine. Um, if I'm going to give it up, I've got to go back to when I was that age emotionally and start rebuilding all my tools. So you have to learn to forgive yourself and you have to learn to, to accept that, you know, you're going to let some of the pitches go by and that you're going to kind of stand there dumbfounded sometimes going, I used to know how to handle that. What the hell just happened? And you just say, oh, yeah, I'm working on a new life. That this is before you would mess up and you would binge, which would kind of erase the memory of the mess up. So you keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Now you're in this lucky position where you get to remember every mistake. But that's called learning. So you're going to remember it, and then you're going to do something different the next time, and then you're going to get better at doing something different. So just learn that, that practice of being nice to yourself and forgiving yourself for the mistakes while you're working on this. 
in the back. Talk about letting go of a person. I'm not sure if the question is letting go of a person I really, really like or letting go of a person I really, really hate. Um, a person I really, really like. Um, so, okay, so the person, letting go of a person I really, really like, um, I live in God's world. In my world, I know who I'm supposed to be married to. I know when I was supposed to meet them. I know when I was supposed to uh, get the perfect job. I know when I was supposed to uh, have my first you know, book published, my first movie made, my first Oscar. I know when all of those things were supposed to happen. Um, but then there's reality. And in reality, I'm often wrong. So if I'm trying to make something work with somebody and it's not working, I have to trust God. I um, You know, I have that brain that tries to get inside other people's heads. And I was actually, one of my family's lessons for me was, you know, it's one thing to ask people for what you want and get it, but it's even more masterful if you can convince them they want it too and get them to give it to you without asking. <laughs> it sounds so crazy when I say it now. It made sense a while ago. Um, I'm not actually, you know, every person in here comes with their own marching orders from their higher power. And I have to trust that they're trying as hard as I am to live according to what their higher power is telling them. I may be saying this person and I are perfect for each other, but if they're getting a very strong signal that we're not, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and just deal with it. You know, I've got to let it go and trust that God's got something better and got something that I, that's more meaningful. Yeah. Did I find God and what would I say to the non-believer? Um, I found God on a run. It was, uh, I was running around, uh, I think it's Roxbury Park where Serenity Sunday used to happen. And I was just going for one of my normal little runs. And there was a song lyric going through my head, which is, I am an echo of the eternal cry of let there be. And I realized that the way I had looked at my life up until that moment was, I am an accidental organism. I have a little pouch in my head full of happy juice. And I have to figure out how to, make, how to convince the pouch to release the happy juice uh, in order for me to be happy. And the way I, I convince that little pouch to do its job is by orchestrating everything around me perfectly. So I can't be happy until I'm rich enough. I can't be happy until I'm having the best sex. I can't be happy until I've got the best looking girl. I can't be happy until I've got the best job and everybody has me on magazine covers. I cannot be happy until I make reality shift to my will. And then I realized on that run, I just had this shift of focus that said, actually, that happiness, that ability to be happy is always inside of me. I can be happy about anything that's going on right this very moment and still want something better. I can be happy and still say, but I want to work on this. I want to reach for that. I want to try and achieve these things. But I don't have to beat myself up or be miserable about it. For me, that's God. The God I grew up with was like a laboratory doctor who, every time I messed up, put me back at the start of the maze and said, try again. And that's what a binge was. Like, I would, I would get somewhere and, like, I'm that guy in the big book where the day before the big appointment, the day before the big meeting, I'm like, screw it, I'm going out. Um, I actually have a real terror. I have an image of myself at the marathon tomorrow stopping like three yards before the finish line going, why bother? Um, so um, for me, God is, is an image of a person who, who wants me to be happy. And he puts his hand on my back and says, yeah, this sucks. 
let's go talk to somebody who's going to give it, you know, be compassionate for us. Or he says, this is really good. Enjoy this. Have some fun with this. Hey, that girl wants a second date with you. Yes, that, you can be, you know, be excited about that. You know, oh, she doesn't want a third date with you. Well, enjoy the fact that, you know, you got to meet her, you got to know her, and, you know, she lets you down in the nicest way she possibly could. All those things. You know, that other guy got a promotion, good for him. I don't even want the job he's going for. Yeah, I, didn't, I you know. <laughs> Seriously, like, I will, I will wind myself up going, why did that guy get promoted when I don't even want the job? So that's my experience of God, and what I would say to the non-believer is, um, you know, how's it going? <laughs> Sadly, I can't. The question is, can I talk about making amends to people who uh, owe me amends? Sadly, I can't because I'm still on my eighth step. Um, the closest I ha- experience I have to that is I have a person in my life who I believe is the devil. And... Um, <laughs> I have a therapist who every time I start talking about relationships says, now can we talk about how that showed up in your relationship with that person? And I keep going, I didn't do anything wrong with my relationship with that person. They were the devil. I was never going to come out of that situation happy. Um, I struggle with it. I, I am struggling with how, how, do I, how do I say I'm, you know, I'm sorry for what I did without then going, but you realize at the time you were. Um, so yeah, I... I talk about my daily practice to build and develop my recovery. I wake up in the morning. Uh, first thing I do is I read two pages of the big book. I just go through two pages at a time. Um, and then I read the uh, for today. And then I get on my knees and I say a set of prayers, which are um, the St. Francis Prayer, which is the Lord make me a channel of thy peace. I say a prayer that I wrote for the little girl whose father I was privileged to be for a while. Um, I say the, a prayer for my sexual sobriety, because that's my other program. Um, I will say the resentment prayer once through, all the way through, for any one person on my resentment list from the night before. Uh, then I say the third step prayer, sometimes the seventh step prayer, and then the serenity prayer. Now I can go take my shower and have breakfast and start my day. Um, I'm usually in a meeting by 7.30 in the morning. Um, I have three commitments in OA plus another meeting I go to because I like the people there and I like the recovery in that room. Um, I have my other program where I have a commitment at two meetings a week and I try to make as many of the other ones as I can. I call both of my sponsors. I have three sponsees in OA who call me. Um, I try to make three outreach calls to people in program every day throughout the course of the day whether I feel I need to or not. Uh, and then at the end of the night, um, I do, or sorry, I do three morning pages about when, when I can, and I try to get 10 minutes meditation in. At the end of the night, I do a 10th step, um, and then I say that set of prayers again, although instead of the St. Francis prayer, I say the set-aside prayer, because I feel like that's better for going to sleep. And then um, that's, that's it. Uh, that's the end of my day. And it, saying it now, it does sound like a lot, and I've, I remember complaining to somebody once, I was like, why does it take me, you know, two hours of busy work a day to, to get my head straight? And they said, how was it before you were doing the two hours? So. And I've had the experience of um, the obsession coming back with food and abstinence. What have I done? Uh, first thing I do is get on the phone, um, tell somebody exactly what's going on with, with me, and exactly what I'm feeling, even if it makes no sense. Um, I've had to add things to my red light list 
because I've realized like I've eaten certain, I found certain salads that were very nice and, and heavy and, you know, certain restaurants do it right. Um, only realized that like I'd walk out of the restaurant with my stomach feeling very full, almost to the point of hurting. And all I could think of was, wow, I wonder if I could have that for, for dinner also. <laughs> so when I realized I was having that thought, I just got on the phone and called my sponsor. I said, so I've got a new item for my red light list. And I told him about it. He says, that sounds like a red light list item right there. Um, I've had, I, I recently had an experience where I found out that the creamer I've been using in the coffee at work had sugar in it and that that's been going on for like months and it kind of explains why I've been really jazzed about the coffee at work. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, told my sponsor about it. I did not want to. I was, you know, that was a very frightening call. Like, by the way, this whole abstinence that I just took a second year candle for, I've been dosing myself with sugar twice a day for the last three months. Um, and just, it goes on the list. Like, I just have to, to forgive myself and let it go. I... Be compassionate to yourself. Your brain has, has used um, food as its comfort mechanism for so long. Just having the thought, you know, I don't know, other people think of like their favorite toy or their blankie from a kid, I think of food. I have, you know, it's just a comforting image that I call to mind. Um, so just accept it and be compassionate and realize that just because you're thinking about it doesn't mean you have to do it. You know, I was sitting, I went to an open AA meeting once and the guy in front of me, you know, his buddy came over and said, how are you doing today? And the guy said, wish I was drunk. And I thought, I wish there was more of that in OA. You know, I wish there was more of just honestly saying, God, I want to face, you know, I'm going to nosedive into a cheesecake. Sounds real. I'm not doing it. I'm in a meeting, but I feel like it. So, do it that way. Yeah. Um... That one is, I'm, I'm getting, sorry, the question is, with my mother, the woman who abused me, how, how has the program changed my relationship with that? Um, you know, she passed away when I was 23. Um, actually, a lot of what's been leading to the awareness around that was people would ask me, um, people would say, what do you think, you know, is going so well in your program? And I, for a while, almost for a year, I said, well, I don't have to go home. I never have to sit down to Christmas dinner with my parents again. I don't have to sit in my family of origin. Um, so there's a lot of buttons that don't get pushed anymore. And I felt like for a, lo- for a large part of it, I'm kind of free to just grow into this new person without somebody kind of coming by and feeling betrayed by it. I think parents can feel very betrayed when their kids start changing. But I repeated that so often that I started to realize that maybe I didn't escape as much as I did and there's a lot of old beliefs that I still carry around. So I'm just starting to work on Again, I'm in my eighth step. How am I going to forgive my parents and separate what I'm mad at them for from what I'm grateful for? Because they did protect me, and I'm, you know, survived to 30, so they did something right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my time. So thank you all for. Thank you. Thank you.